Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. I'm Jim Wittivine. It's good to be here with you once again. This is episode 109 of the podcast, and this is the fourth part in the series on eschatology, Eschatology 101, part four. And I want to thank those of you who have sent comments and questions and those who I've talked to personally uh, who have been watching these episodes. I've received more comments on these episodes than on many other episodes, and I'm uh, I'm thankful for that. And uh, just to let you know that I am going to get to some of those questions in future episodes. So as we continue on, I'm not exactly sure how long this is going to go, but uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll keep on going as uh, as time permits and as uh, as I get the opportunity to do so. So in this episode, I'm going to be continuing with the Book of Revelation. Last week, uh, I spoke about the specifically about the time references in chapter one of Revelation and uh, the situation of John as uh, as he received this revelation uh, on the island of Patmos in exile there for the sake of the gospel. And now I'm going to spend some time looking at specifically at chapters two and three. And I'm not going to get into a lot of the, the details about the individual churches and about the situations and, and about the, the various meanings. I think uh, there's a lot of material out there on those things. But I want to talk generally about the context of Revelation, because I think it's very important for us to understand, and also specifically to understand these things in the light of current situations and and a lot of speculation about eschatology and a lot of views about um, the place of Israel uh, and the Jewish people in God's plan and and what Revelation has to say about that. And in order to do that, the first thing I'm going to do is look at some of the historical context. And obviously the historical context of the the early church, the early New Testament church, is found in the book of Acts. And I just want to take a look. There's a lot of examples that I could choose from, but I want to take a look at one example in particular. And for those of you who are on Rumble, once again, uh, I'm going to open up my Accordance software so you can read along with me. If, uh, if you're listening, you can uh, look it up in your own Bible or you can just listen along. And this is Acts chapter 17. So the heading uh, in my uh, ESV Bible is uh, Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. And I'll just read through this and I'll make some comments as I go along. So Acts 17, beginning at verse 1, says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So this is the Messiah who is foretold in scripture, and and this is the general practice of the apostles. Go uh, Go to the synagogues first. Go to the, the covenant people of God and proclaim the gospel and proclaim the fulfillment of scripture in Jesus Christ to them first. So then verse four, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So some of them were persuaded, some of the, some of the Jews were persuaded 
uh, and were convinced. They accepted the message of the gospel. They joined with the apostles. But then there were a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And then verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. This is this is this is a very important part of what actually happens here because it says a lot about what the gospel message is and what the gospel message accomplishes and these are things that also come back again in revelation with the opening of the seals for example uh that that this kind of message comes back but it also shows something about the context and the the attitude of the Jews who rejected Christ and rejected the gospel message toward that gospel message. So they knew the importance of it. They knew that the Christian faith isn't just a matter of what lives in your heart. And so it's not just a private, personal matter. This is a message that has turned the world upside down. Wherever the gospel comes, the world gets turned upside down. So a very important point right there. Uh, so they say, they shout, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Once again, extremely important, and I want to highlight this point. What is the gospel message? The gospel message, the, the, you know, one of the central aspects of the gospel message is Jesus Christ is king. And this message is opposed by the leaders of the Jews and those who follow them. So the leaders, the leaders of the Jewish people in uh, in Thessalonica, uh, with along with their followers, they're standing as representatives of the Jewish people as a whole. Uh, and so these men who have read it once again, these men who have turned the world upside down with their preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And what are they doing? Well, remember that, that these Jewish leaders, representatives, are going to the civil authorities to report what's going on in order to get the civil authorities to do something. Well, how can they do that? Well, they can talk about uh, and they can warn them a, about a political movement that's happening. So they've, they've upset the, the status quo and now they're preaching, actually, that there is another king. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, Caesar who is deified, who's considered to be a son of the gods, who's, who's referred to as the savior, uh, who's the object of the imperial cult, of the imperial religion, the religion of the empire, uh, the representative of the empire in that religion. Uh, and so these uh, Jewish people go to the state or the representatives of the state, the civil government, and they report the Christians, including some who had been among their brothers in the synagogue, and they use the, the emperor's or the, the, the empire's own official religion against these people. 
They are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So they recognize that the meaning of the gospel, and they obviously they, they reject it. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So as long as the fight is just kind of a, a squabble between two sects of a single religion, the authorities don't really need to be involved at all, and they're, they're kind of scratching their head, like, what's going on here? Uh, what end? What would end up happening uh, is that the the Jews would be expelled from Rome, and they would be expelled uh, because of the kinds of of disturbances. Uh, one of the historians says that were caused by Crestus. So that's a a reference to Christ. They they didn't understand what was going on, but they, well, it's these disturbances caused by Crestus. Well, it was the disturbances between the Jews and those. Uh, the Jews who had refused to accept Christ and the Jews who had followed Christ, those followers of Crestus, between quotation marks. So the people, the city authorities are disturbed. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they take money as security, maybe a bribe. I don't, I'm not exactly sure, but they take money and they let them go because this, this they do see this still as kind of a, a squabble amongst the Jews. And those Jews were known to be difficult people, a thorn in the side of uh, uh, and, and receiving special treatment in the, in the empire. Then continuing on in verse 10, uh, again, we're in Acts 17. So Acts 17, verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, who were still up in arms, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off uh, on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And then there's the story of Paul in Athens. But we see what happens here. So the, the, the Jews in, in Thessalonica are so upset by what's going on, they even follow the apostles to Berea. The, the apostles go to work in the Jewish synagogue, preaching the gospel again. And uh, it seems like a, a, a larger number uh, or a larger proportion of members of the synagogue accepted the message of the gospel and uh, uh, received uh, with eagerness the, uh, the message of Jesus Christ. So they looked at scripture carefully and they saw that the scripture pointed to Jesus Christ. And the scripture really was all about Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Everything in the Old Testament, as we have it, points, or the scripture, as they had it, uh, points to him, and they realize that. So the Jews, uh, remember it speaks about their jealousy. They stir up the crowds, uh, and, and they agitate, and they, they work to uh, chase Paul out of the city. Now, as we go, and I'm going to now turn to Revelation chapter 2, 
And as we look at Revelation chapter 2, we are looking at the historical context, uh, specifically of the churches that first received the book of Revelation to be read in their worship services. So there's seven churches. The churches are located in the Roman province of Asia Minor. And the the seven churches, uh, according to some commentators, are listed according to an ancient mail route. So you can you can actually imagine the the message going from one church to the other along this ancient mail route. And these are actual churches, historical churches, and the messages that are meant for them are based in historical fact. This is not some kind of uh, universally or applicable. Um, kind of symbolism, one church stands for this, another church stands for this. No, they, these are churches. I mean, well, of course, we can apply uh, these messages to our own situations, and we should, but at the same time, we need to remember the historical context. Again, I've mentioned this before, one of the, the, the principles of interpretation that is very important for us is that we need to, in order to interpret correctly the Scripture in our own, uh, in our own context— in our own situation, we need to understand what the original readers, the original hearers would have understood and how they would have applied it in their own uh, lives, in their own congregations, in their own situation generally. So we're going to go through uh, Revelation 2 here. So the first letter is letter or message or oracle of Jesus Christ is to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now the angel being, I believe, the either the, the pastor or uh, a representative of the leadership of the congregation. So uh, perhaps the person who's going to read this book aloud in the worship service, in the public gathering of the congregation. So then comes an introduction, and in all of these seven oracles to the churches, there's an introduction of Jesus Christ, who is sending these messages. So Jesus Christ is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the message to the church in Ephesus, and we won't get into it in a lot of detail, uh, is uh, a message of praise. So they've tested uh, false apostles. Uh, they've been enduring patiently, and that patient endurance uh, is also mentioned in chapter 1, and it's mentioned uh, several other times in Revelation as being a very important part uh, or, or important concept in Revelation, an, an encouragement to patient endurance. They were bearing up for the sake of Christ's name. They have not grown weary. But the problem was they had abandoned their first love. They, uh, so Jesus tells them to remember from where they had fallen and to repent. Now, they had another good thing going for them, and that was that they hated the uh, works of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans are mentioned uh, again uh, in the context of the other churches as well, the Nicolaitans and the followers of Balaam and the prophetess, the false prophetess Jezebel, all of whom are working within the churches to lead God's people astray. So basically the, the, the central facts here are that there are enemies working inside of the church and it, obviously within the members themselves, their own sinful nature, but within the churches, the enemy's working to uh, derail the cause of the gospel, including these Nicolaitans, 
these followers of, of Balaam and the followers of Jezebel, the false prophetess. Uh, and, and so Ephesus specifically had the problem of losing its first love. They were, they were zealous for the truth of the gospel, but it seems like they really had forgotten the point of why they were doing all this in the first place. So, so for them, true doctrine had become an end in itself. Then there's this pattern that this message to Ephesus uh, concludes with, which is a pattern for all, all of the messages. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the message for Ephesus is not meant just for Ephesus, but it's also meant for the other six churches. And, and by implication, it's also meant for us today. Uh, so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then there's a message about conquering. To the one who conquers... And then a promise. What's what's Jesus going to do? In this case, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So again, this is like a stereotypical pattern for all seven of these messages. The next message is to the church in Smyrna. And here's where we see some of that, that context of what we read in Acts chapter 17 come into play. In 2 verse 9, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation, tribulation, another extremely important word in Revelation, and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So this is, this is vitally important to understanding the message of Revelation and where the words of judgment in Revelation are directed. There are those who say that they are Jews and are not. So they, they claim that they are God's covenant people. Well, Jesus says they're not. They have become not a synagogue of Yahweh, of the Lord, but they are a synagogue of Satan. And so the encouraging words for the Christians in Smyrna uh, is not that they're going to be suddenly whisked out of their suffering, but... Do not fear what you are about to suffer. They are going to suffer, but they are called not to fear. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Again, there's that word, tribulation. And ten days is a, is a limited time in comparison to some of the huge numbers that are mentioned in Revelation. So it's a brief period of tribulation, of testing, of trials or oppression. And then it continues, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then there's that, that uh, repeated uh, refrain, he was an ear, let him hear, and the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The first death being physical death, the second death being uh, eternal punishment. Third message, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, Pergamum was the, the eastern center of the imperial cult. Rome was the western center of the imperial cult. Pergamum was the eastern center. There was also uh, a temple overlooking the city to Asclepios, who was like a serpent deity, uh, and other uh, religious centers as well in Pergamum. So it, it's uh, to say that that's where Satan's throne is, which kind of shows you the situation that this church was in. 
Yet, despite the fact that they are located where Satan's throne is, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Again, faithful witness. So talking about one of the martyrs, man who gave up his life for the faith. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. But there's a problem. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and there's a call to repentance and the stereotypical ending as well and the promises given to those who conquer. 2 verse 18, the message to the church in Thyatira starts. And again, the description of the Son of God and the message directly to this church. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, again, patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But then comes the the mention of Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And then there's a warning of judgment that's going to come upon her and her children and what that is going to mean for the churches. And then in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast, so again, persevere, uh, hold fast in in, uh, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, so this encouragement to perseverance again, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, and as even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So there's a, a, a kingly promise here, and again a reference to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then the repeated ending. Then chapter 3, the angel of the church in Sardis receives a message, which is a uh, not a good one. They have a reputation for being alive, but they're actually dead. They need to strengthen what remains and is about to die. For, Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember what you received, keep it, and repent. And if you don't wake up, I am going to come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And this language is also very important because Jesus says, I am going to come. This is not talking about his final coming, his coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, as we confess uh, in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. This is him coming in, saying that he is going to come in judgment against them if they do not repent and come like a thief. Yet, verse 4, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then the message to the one who conquers, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 3, verse 7, the message to the church in Philadelphia. And Jesus says to them, I know your works. I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. 
Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So, so they will be justified in the sight of those who have rejected Christ, who continue to claim that they are the faithful covenant people of God, but who are not in reality. And he is going to make, Jesus is going to make these people come and bow down before the feet of the followers of Jesus Christ and justify them before them. Because you, he continues in verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, once again, patient endurance, take note, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth or those who dwell in the, in the land. So they are going to be kept from the hour of trial. Well, what does that mean? Is that some kind of, that they're going to be raptured at the end before everything bad happens? No, they are going to be, they are not going to experience that hour, that limited time of trial uh, because they have endured up until now. They've kept his word. And remember in chapter one, blessed, blessed are those who hear this word and keep it. And Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So remember, he talked about coming soon in judgment. And so he says here, I am coming soon as well. And soon means soon. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And again, there's this this symbolism, this rich symbolism that shows that the church, the New Testament church, is the fulfillment uh, and the continuation of the people of God. So there's this, this this, this distinction, but there's also this continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant people of God. And then he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the church in Laodicea. This is the lukewarm church, neither hot nor cold. Jesus says, because you are this way, I will spit you out of my mouth. They were rich. They had prospered. They didn't think they needed anything. They didn't understand that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so Jesus counsels them uh, to return to him. He tells them to be zealous and to repent. And then we see the the refrain at the end, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, there's that royal imagery, the believers reigning with Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So very briefly, those are... The, the, the oracles of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And as I mentioned, it's so important for us to see this historical context. What was going on at the time, what these churches were experiencing. They were experiencing troubles in the churches. They were experiencing troubles from without. The synagogue of Satan, as we saw in Acts chapter 17, was aligning itself with the pagan state, which had made itself a god, was saying was saying along with them, and that the, the synagogue of Satan was, we have no king but Caesar, just as the uh, when the Jews cru- uh, sent Christ or or demanded that Christ be crucified, they said the same thing. 
That's what was happening in these churches. Trouble within, trouble from without. Some of the churches were suffering uh, because of persecution. Uh, some Christians had already given up their lives. This is the context into which this revelation came. And the revelation was meant to be an encouragement and a challenge to these people. So an encouragement for those who were suffering, a challenge for those who were uh, lukewarm, to those who had lost their first love, uh, to those who were falling away, as had already been foretold. The love of many will grow cold, and that's exactly what was happening. So these people needed to be challenged, but those who were going to face suffering and those who were going to see and experience all of this upheaval, this turmoil happening, which was going to turn the world upside down, as the message of the gospel does, they needed to hear this message. So that, that gives us an idea about what this message is about. What is the application of this message? Well, the application is, we need, as I mentioned, we need to think about the initial application to the initial, the first hearers and readers of this message. And we need to think about, okay, what, what comfort would it be for, uh, let's see, let's go back here. Um, what comfort would it be for the church in... In Pergamum, verses 12 and following. What comfort would it, would it be to this church uh, where Antipas, the faithful witness, was killed among them, where they dwell, where Satan's throne is, in the center of, of emperor worship, in the center of Asclepius worship, um, Zeus and Apollo, whatever else, false, false gods that were worshipped there, where they're being excluded from participation in uh, in the public uh, in public activities because they refused to offer a pinch of incense to the genius of Caesar, where, along with the other churches, they're facing the synagogue of Satan, which is uh, reporting them to the authorities and all of these things. What comfort would it be to them to know that in 2,000 years uh, something was going to happen? What comfort would it be to them to uh, and, and we'll, we'll uh, Lord willing, we'll we'll see some of this when we look at the four horsemen, to 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 learn about the Islam coming and to learn about uh, the the coming of the Soviet Union or China or wh however those things have been interpreted. No, this message is meant to strengthen, to encourage them, and to tell them about the things that are going to soon take place. This doesn't mean that these words are not applicable to us any, any more than the fact that the Old Testament prophecies are also fulfilled makes them not applicable to us. They are applicable to us as well. So this is these are applicable to us. We need to apply them in our own situation, understanding that these words have been fulfilled. So the historical context being extremely important, the fact that what we have in Revelation is God's covenantal lawsuit against his apostate people, which had become the synagogue of Satan, which had become Babylon, which had become Egypt, which would have a, a, a worse ending than Tyre and Sidon, or than Sodom and Gomorrah, which had become worse than Tyre and Sidon. 
see all that stuff throughout the Gospels as well, what Jesus said. That this that generation would uh, get and receive what they had said that they wanted. When they cried out, when they uh, shouted out that Jesus Christ and demanded that Jesus Christ be crucified, they said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And so all of these punishments would come upon that generation. And we'll see more about this as we go through this. But the important things to note here is the actions of what Jesus himself refers to as the synagogue of Satan and how that synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews but who are not, are working in concert with the state in order to persecute God's people, the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So next time, next week, the Lord willing, we'll continue on with Revelation. We'll get into uh, some more detail about Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. So if you found this helpful, please do pass it on. Pass on the link to the Rumble channel, as I, as I always say, or pass on the link to the, uh, to the audio podcast. And please do check out, also check out the website, www.dan1132.com, and uh, pass that on as well. Uh, if you know anybody who has questions about uh, eschatology, uh, please do pass it on to them. And if you do have any questions about what I've said here, I've, I've, as I mentioned, I've received a number of questions and comments already. Uh, you can send them using the form on the website, www.dan1132.com, and I'll get those and I'll do my best to respond to them, either personally or else uh, in an upcoming episode. So until next time, may God bless you and may God help us all to, in the words of Daniel 11, verse 32, be people who know our God and know his word and knowing him by knowing his word and through knowing his word and knowing him in all of his words and works, be people who stand firm and take action.